Hey everyone, as I'm taking a bit of a break, I am uh, sharing with you an episode that I did on the Mongol Media podcast about an article that I wrote for them called Solarpunk, Climate Change and the New Thinkable. Essentially, we spoke about how I got into Solarpunk as a speculative fiction genre, what do I feel are its potentials, uh, even its limitations, how can Solarpunk help us think about climate change and render climate change as being this unthinkable thing into a thinkable thing, essentially. Make sure to read the article I wrote for them. Again, it's called Solarpunk, Climate Change, and the New Thinkable. You can find it in the description below. And make sure to check out uh, Mongol Media's project, the website, uh, its podcast, and if you can, consider uh, supporting them uh, financially as well. That's it for me, folks. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you all in January. Hello, and welcome to the Mongol Media Show. I am Mongol Media Editor-in-Chief, Efe Levant. To learn more about us and follow the articles discussed on the show, please visit our website www.mangalmedia.net. Mangal Media is supported entirely by reader donations. If you like our content and would like to see more of it, please check out our pledge options from our Patreon site. Listeners who like fiction can also buy our illustrated short story, Guide to Every City written by myself and illustrated by Ala Al-Hassoum. Guide to Every City is a guide for a fictional city inhabited by insects. The three different species of insect in every city, hopsters, sloggers and buzzies, live segregated lives on their isolated neighborhoods. The book not only presents a commentary on social divisions within urban life, it also satirizes contemporary travel writing. The fictional author of the guide, Steve McCracker, is a thoroughly unrelatable hipster who genuinely believes that the rest of the world did not exist until he discovered it for some over-designed travel magazine. You will laugh, you will cringe, in the words of Steve, you will never be the same again. In this episode, I am joined by Joey Ayub to discuss his new article on Mangal Media, Solar Punk, Climate Change and the New Thinkable. I'm here with Joey Ayub, and we're going to talk about his article about solar punk. Solar punk, climate change, and the new thinkable. Hello, Joey. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back again. A great pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps first you could just kind of summarize to us what solar punk means and like uh, what you find significant about it. Sure. Well, it's it's many things to many people. I'm I'm sure. So I'll I'll just try and kind of explain what it is to me. Uh, well, some you know some background. It was uh, you know it's about a decade old. Some some would say a bit older. There have been some stories that some have described that are kind of being proto solar punk basically, or some tendencies, let's say, in sci-fi that have been solar punk. But solar punk essentially imagines better futures than the one that we are likely to have. For example, uh, especially it is very climate conscious. And it thinks of ways in which we might uh, cope with uh, the effects of climate change. So it's not uh, naive in the sense that it thinks that we can uh, solve climate change, whatever solution, whatever solving actually means. But it definitely advocates for thinking of different futures. And that's that's kind of my definition for it. Different ways of thinking about the future. It started really as sci-fi, like as um, largely literary oriented and art oriented uh, lots of tumblr posts and that kind of thing and in recent years it's become 
at least what some folks, uh, including myself, have been trying to do that more recently. Uh, something more also like a, a political stance as well. So mm -hmm. like there's the fiction component of it and there's a non-fiction component of it and sometimes in conversation with one another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what is it that kind of like spoke to you about this concept of solarpunk? What is it that inspired you about it? Well, you know, like I, I deal with a lot of what you might call eco-anxiety, climate anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, I have a background, my undergrad is in environmental health and environmental sciences. And in the past decade or so, uh, we've obviously seen uh, the situation, to be very vague about it, getting worse. And probably, I mean, very likely for the foreseeable future, it's also going to get worse. And I just couldn't find any um, ways of dealing with it mentally. Um, and Solarpunk isn't necessarily like the solution. There isn't any one solution. That's actually part of the problems I think we have that we always seek a single solution to everything and there there just isn't one. Um, but what appealed to me is that at least it, it gives me some kind of blueprint to aim for, right? Like it's not um, some stories that I've read are, you know, fantastical, so I know they won't happen. But in the same way as some of the fantasy books that I read when I was younger, you know, Lord of the Rings, among others, mm -hmm. uh, that have allowed me to sort of escape from a difficult reality I was in, this it kind of plays a similar purpose. It has, has a similar role. The difference, obviously, is that with a book like Lord of the Rings, I, I don't read it thinking that it's, it has some kind of actionable value in the present, right? I'm just reading it for the purpose of that escape. The pleasure is the escape. Solarpunk, I mean, some would, I mean, you can do that if you want. You don't have to find it actionable in the present. But generally speaking, that is sort of the tendency. That's the punk aspect of it, obviously. So it's about finding ways of thinking about the future while while hoping or knowing, let's say, that you're going to do something about it in the present. One, the first question that comes to my mind after what you've just said is uh, comparing solarpunk as a kind of, I suppose, a literary movement or an aesthetic movement mm -hmm. that, uh, that presents something actionable above the layer of fantasy. I'm interesting from I'm interested from a literary point of view of does that does does its presentation of actionable values make the element of escapism any like does it diminish it does it make it any less exciting because I mean they're you know they're superficially very contradicting things would adding one kind of diminish the other well, it might, you know, that I've read some solarpunk stories that are not good in, in a sense of like enjoyable, but I've read others that have been pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like it, it really depends. I've, as I said, I've, I've read some pretty good stories in which I did find myself escaping and I didn't get into them because it's not like you read a story, like you're reading a sci-fi novel, right? Like you're not, you're not reading it knowing in advance, oh, how is this going to be useful? And the difficulty, of course, is that if uh, there is sort of the, the label attached to it in advance, like, you know, oh, this is solarpunk, then maybe you might enter the novel with these preconceived ideas, uh, preconceived expectations even, which makes, of course, the, the, the job of the, the writer, you know, ever more difficult. Uh, and that's maybe why I'm, I'm, I've been and like kind of... Um, approaching solarpunk more from like a non-fiction perspective rather than a, like a non-fiction framework than a fiction one uh, 
But I mean, that's just me. Uh, I've interviewed uh, Phoebe Wagner a few days ago. She's the co-author, uh, co-editor, sorry, of a compilation of short stories of, mm -hmm. called Sunvolt. And so like, that's an example of someone who is actually approaching it through fiction, although mm -hmm. she's actually also working on a nonfiction compilation right now. So it is a bit of both really, uh, but of course, yeah, there is that risk. And um, I found, as I said, I found stories that have been more interesting than others. And, but I found stories that have really made me think in ways that I didn't, I didn't know I, I would kind of approach it that way, if you see what I mean. Because one thing that I think a lot of solo punk writers that I've seen, so, that I've read so far, are trying to do is to sort of move beyond the hero arc, right? And that's something that, especially in an in individual hero's arc, let's put it that way. Because that is a criticism that a lot of us, you know, I'm calling myself solo punk here, would have towards a more common genre that we've seen, or at least a trope that we've seen in the past, give or take a few decades, especially I would say past couple of decades, you know, the disaster movies, the post-apocalyptic ones and all of that. Not that I don't enjoy them from time to time, I do. But at some point, it really felt that there's just too much of it and not much of, well, what do we do about all of those anxieties that we have about the future, if you see mm -hmm. what I mean. Mm -hmm. When you say that you're approaching uh, solar punk from like a nonfiction perspective, there is, uh, at the beginning of your article, you quote uh, Amitav Ghosh's The Great Derangement, mm -hmm. Climate Change and the Unthinkable. Uh, you're, I suppose you're also similar to his argument, uh, from what I understand, is that he is criticizing um, literary fiction's inability to uh, grapple with climate change as an yeah. immediate thing that's happening right now. Is yeah. when you talk about kind of nonfiction, um, could your nonfiction interest in solar punk, is it uh, the urge to bring climate, like the, the urge to bring the urgency of climate change into contemporary discourse. That exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I've, I've been very frustrated. I mean, as you know, uh, with much of this course is on the left for various reasons. Yes. Among, among others, uh, or maybe like, especially recently, it's been one of my main issues is this lack of urgency that I felt. And a lot of the urgency that we've seen related to climate change have not been by people who, I mean, they might, but it's not been necessarily something explicitly left-wing, left let's say. Uh, it's been, you know, teenagers and, and children and just climate activists and, you know, probably most of whom would see themselves as being left-wing or broadly on the left, but it hasn't been this explicit thing. And this has been a big frustration of mine. Um, I've even like gotten into actual conversations and debates and sometimes heated ones, although I haven't in a while because I avoid them now, but on like people saying, well, it doesn't really matter what we do about climate change because individual actions don't matter and therefore there's nothing, you know, pretty cynical, um, uh, defeatist attitude, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and my, my response to that isn't that, uh, well, we need to bring it back to the individual because obviously that is also a trap. I'm not saying, oh, you should just do these individual moves and therefore that's, you know, that's going to change things. Because we do know that the vast majority of what we, what we call man-made climate change is caused by a pretty small number of people, uh, at least relatively to their size. Uh, but that does not mean that there aren't individual responsibilities, and it does not mean, more importantly, that there aren't community-based community things that we can do. And so it's sort of a way of, of like, you know, uh, kind of me being a pessimist about things, a bit of a pessimist and a bit of an optimist, uh, having different balances depending on the day, different... Um, uh, ways of approaching it, knowing that almost nothing that we're going to do will be considered sufficient enough 
but there like it's sort of like when you if you if you kind of were debating the details and while we're debating the date details we know that there is this wider trend happening and yet somehow we're unable to deal with the wider trend we, we can talk about the small details that like we can talk about well we should have small sorry to be specific small by the scale of the planet to be very specific so like should we have uh you know i live in switzerland should we have an insurance-based system or should we have a universal uh, you know healthcare system i would say universal healthcare other would say insurance we have these debates and whatnot but at the same time switzerland is contributing to climate change due to its over you know overarching political and economical um paradigm you know obviously i'm talking about capitalism and this is this is one of those things that ends up being frustrating because how much time can we spend talking about how we need to organize societies between one another as in individual local things usually or at least at the national level when we know that the problem is global and we know that the problem is literally planetary wide and for me solar punk is one way it's not the only way but it's like one way of approaching that question it's like well we assume that we if you assume that by 2050 we have resolved most of the conflicts that we spent 90% of our times debating, right? Like wars, famine, capitalism, patriarchy, what have you. If we assume that, probably not going to happen, but if we do assume that, how would the world look like? And then what the next steps would be like, right? The idea is to have a horizon to look forward to. A lot of the issues that we have on the left, at least one of them, is that we tend to react to something, right? We are fighting something. We are fighting capitalism, patriarchy, racism, homophobia, and of course we should. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But then what is, what is we're fighting for? That's sort of the, the difficulty. Um, I don't claim to have the answer either. I'm just saying Solarpunk is sort of one framework among others, and recently it's been a, a main framework, in, in my opinion, at least in my life, because it's so, um, in order to tackle all of this, because it's so new and because it's so, uh, well, in theory, endless, right? It's limitless. Uh, we are literally thinking about like what would 2050 look like and how, if it, if that is how it would look like, likely to look like, which is already impossible to do. You can just have educated guesses. Well, then what can we do today to make 2050 slightly better? And maybe once we can manage to think like that, maybe we can then take it further and rather than slightly better, actually better, like an actually livable, nice place to be in, not mm -hmm. something that we're only surviving, but actually thriving as well. So yeah, that's, that's sort of how I would kind of look at it. And like, you know, I'm not very good at fiction, so I'm going with the nonfiction aspect of things. One of the things that really excited me about your description of solar punk in the article was its emphasis on community. And when you uh, when you've kind of talked about uh, just a moment ago about how solar punk fiction is interested in getting stories outside of the character arc kind of yes. uh, kind of development. I mean, I've not really had the opportunity to engage with uh, solar punk fiction. But from your description of it, I get the impression that it is also something that uh, rotates around the community as opposed to yes. uh, as opposed to the uh, like Frodo getting the ring to the monster yes. or whatever, you know. Yes. Yes. Um, and I, I want to I want to think about this in in relation to what you just talked about, the problems with the left. Um, I basically abandoned the practice of identifying myself with the left anymore. I like I, 
I don't do this thing of like putting quotation marks around like so-called left. I think the left is left. Mm. It's best left behind. And it makes an opportunity for an excellent uh, play on words as well. Um, but I think one of the fundamental problems that's inherent to the left, not the so-called left, but the left, is its attachment to kind of these theoretical structures that are seen as almost like gospel-like. And mm -hmm. I think this uh, obsession with proving the correctness of a 200-year-old theory kind of overwhelms the importance of community engagement a lot of the times mm -hmm. with the left. It, over, it kind of tramples over the importance of listening to actual victims of things like genocide or even climate change. So I, I, what I found to be extremely refreshing about what you described as solar punk was this aspect of like, uh, a community is much more important than a theoretical solution to yeah. an immediate and urgent problem. Yeah, I, I really think a, a solar punk attitude, because, you know, on some level, it's also an attitude, sort of like a lifestyle, although obviously I, I would hope that it's not just that, um, is, is to simply argue that if you have a possibility of creating community garden, community gardens are sort of a quintessential solar punk activity, let's put it that way, um, that's significantly more useful than spending X amount of time trying to prove whether you should have Marxism version 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 one or version two or like you know Marxist Leninism versus Trotskyism versus exactly. what have you. Um, simply put, put like I'm, maybe I won't spend too much time on this, but the crisis of labor and the crisis of work is a real one, but it's not the only one, and that's something that a lot of the a lot of the left has yet to fully understand. Um, you know, I had a lot of those um, anxieties over elections, not because I personally think that elections are, you know, the thing to that can save us. They're definitely not. Um, but I was really worried at how there was this indifference in looking at someone like Donald Trump, who was pretty much like at, at some point advocating that we should just accelerate our, our self-destruction, you know, not saying it out loud, but that was the policies essentially really accelerating the destruction of almost anything that's nice about the US and therefore about the world, because that's another thing that a lot of the left has still some difficulties understanding is that nation states are social constructs. And as much as sometimes we might, uh, and I'm saying we, uh, with some, um, you know, quotation marks, I suppose. Um, let's put it this way. I think that if we solve something within one nation, it might as well be irrelevant on a, on a global scale, mm. not entirely irrelevant, of course, I'm not, because that might be cynical, you know, if you go to that other extreme, but it's simply not as important as finding a way to do something on a global level. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is boring. You know, a lot of it is some, some of it is going to be like, um, I don't know, some engineering thingy, some science thingy, some stuff that I personally don't understand. It will be part of the problem, part of the solution, or part of the framework to avoid the term solution here. But it will never be enough. There will, the, my point is to go back to the original thing I was saying that there, will, there won't be a single framework to solve climate change. You won't be able to solve climate change in the first place. What we can do right now is mitigate climate change in the hope that in the distant, if not maybe near future, we might mitigate it enough that we can, you know, have an actual life and therefore thrive. 
But in order to deal with all of those problems that are all of the damages that are already happening and that will happen in the near future due to the feedback loops, um, I, I just don't personally think that the vast majority of the isms, if not all of them, are pretty well suited. You know, I, I do dabble with anarchism, but I think about it more of like a verb, you know, as David Graeber would say, than as an ideology or as, a, as something to identify myself as. And in some way, I do think solarpunk in the same way. It's mm -hmm. something to do. It's a framework, you know, among other frameworks. And I'm not, but at the same time, I'm not like desperate to label anything as, you know, if I'm seeing someone doing some community gardening, I'm saying, oh, you guys are doing solarpunk. You know, I don't think it matters mm -hmm. as much. It's just something that allows me personally to think about things and clearly other people as well. Because I, I think it has this way of, uh removing usual barriers that we have between disciplines between ways of thinking and so on and so forth so like to give an example it it is a very solar punk thing to do to actively learn how to cook how to garden how to mend your own clothes how to uh create some kind of community level and by garden and cooking i don't only mean in the household i mean also on the community level um, you know, all of these things, because those are inherently anti-capitalistic practices, especially if you do them well. And for me, I want more of that. I think we just don't have enough of it, really. I think it's, it's on some level, it's a numbers question. I just don't think we have enough of it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us don't do them because we don't think that doing one thing is matters because we are so obsessed with all of those big systems questions. We are, and again, I'm saying we, a lot of people on the left, usually think that what we need is essentially to fix things usually top down although recently we've had thankfully we've had more bottom-up approaches and that would hopefully percolate and that would hopefully solve things and i just think at this point it is a very naive thing to 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 do um but i mean that's just me i i also get the feeling from what you were just talking about things like uh the anti-capitalist um actions that you have listed uh, it makes me think about something that's profoundly gendered about contemporary politics as well, because yeah. um, there is this, um, I forgot the name of the anthropologist, but it's almost kind of like an established, um, in social sciences, it's difficult to have laws like in physics, but there's like places where you almost approach a law. Yeah. Um, for example, I don't know, basket weaving or making clothes or all of these activities in hunter-gatherer tribes like sometimes they're made by men, sometimes they're made by women all over the mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. um, so they're not considered to be like good labor or bad labor or like dignified labor or undignified labor globally. But wherever a certain kind of labor is committed uniquely by women, it's considered to be undignified. So like basket weaving could be a woman's work in a mm -hmm. hunter-gatherer tribe in Latin America where it will be viewed as undignified. And it will be seen as men's work in a hunter-gatherer tribe in the Polynesians, where it will be seen as dignified work. So I'm also kind of interested by this gendered aspect of it, because in at least contemporary modern uh, world that we share, the activities that you have described, like cooking or mending your clothes or caring for a community, yep. Uh, are all seen as women's work and they're mm -hmm. all I mean even if not they're not like immediately labeled as being undignified they're seen as unglamorous they're seen yeah. as unexciting you know so I think there's a big role for fiction 
and, uh, and art to actually impress the importance of this kind of work. You know, I've been, um, you know, I've attended a lot of protests in, in my life. And of course, I see the value in them. You know, I would, ne I would never um, discourage them. But I do, ha I have found a bit um, disturbing how there, there was at least at some point in my, in my life, a sense that if a protest isn't happening, therefore nothing else can happen. Like this is like the only way of centering what we think of as activism, right? Like I would be, you know, you've interviewed me in context of Lebanon, I would be asked questions by other folks, uh, like, you know, will the protests happen again? Because when if they do happen again, then maybe that kind of generates enough attention by the world press, and therefore it becomes worthy of thinking about. Yes. But a lot of in order for protests to happen, usually you need a lot of infrastructure, social infrastructures to to be and I'm not, with the exception of whether it's really a desperate kind of protest, in which case usually doesn't last very long because, you know, it's kind of a reaction to something rather than thinking about something forward, as, as we're seeing in Lebanon as well. But like, why, if we do have a protest in December and another protest in June, in June, why doesn't, why does it mean that in those six months, there's nothing to do? You see what I mean? And I would be like, amiss if I wouldn't like focus a lot more of my attention, which is why I've been doing this more recently. And like, how do we build community resiliencies? You know, I'm from Lebanon, the essay, the previous essay that I wrote for Mangal Media was about this whole concept of resiliency, right? Resilience. And because a lot of the time, whenever Lebanon or the Lebanese would be talked about, they would be talked about in these terms, you know, right? Like, well, they're just a resilient people. But other than disagreeing with that, I don't think we are resilient people. What would that even mean? Usually it just means that you sort of get over, you know, get over it and you're strong and with a very gendered way of looking at things, of course, because the strength of what, when, 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 uh, sorry, when the term strength is thought of, thought about, it's, it isn't thought about in the context of a community, right? It's, it's an individual who's strong. Um, and on some level, the solo punk thing to do is to actually focus back on the community, to go back to the whole focusing on the hero's arc. You know, like you think of a movie like Avatar, like James Cameron's movie. A lot of that story could have been so much nicer. <laughs> uh, but instead, it was more about, you know, this white guy who goes to this indigenous land, essentially this foreign planet, and he actually ends up being the hero of the story. And not just any white guy, of course, a white soldier. And this 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 to me is not just like it's not enough to just be pissed off at at cameron you know whatever but i just i'm frustrated at just how common and how frequent these tropes have become right even like uh the marvel cinematic universe as a common as a common example i've watched them i've enjoyed them i don't i don't think there's anything inherently wrong in doing so obviously but I'm just very tired that, well, the only solution to do is to kill the guy. You know, that's that's a solution. Like, you know, you just need a number of tough people who don't care about the law and they will solve things, right? Because there is, you can really trace, like I, I do cinema studies, you can really trace that trope back to like, you know, Dirty Harry and the cops and the ch sheriffs that don't care about the laws and whatnot and because they know what's right. I, I just got tired of it. <laughs> I really just got tired of it. I, I, I think it's, you know, um, Alan Moore, the, 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 the 
comic book um, artist. He said that like, he's tired that in the 60s and 70s, those, those Marvel Cinematic Universe have lasted four or five decades later. But okay, putting that aside, I, I just, I'm very tired that, I'm tired about the fact that among activist circles in general, now it's getting a bit better. And I think it's getting a bit better due to the work of like black feminist scholars and activists and, and this kind of recentralization of the importance of care work. Because you know, like in the near future, even technically already, it's already happening, care work is going to be one of the main jobs. It's just a fact due to the aging population, due to just, we know this trend happening. And yet, I don't understand why we're still as a state at a stage where despite knowing what the trends are, climate change being the obvious one, why then don't we change the currents, if you see what I mean? Solar punk for me is one way of doing that. It's it's about like, okay, well, let's assume we have solved it. How would it look later? How would it look after? What is the actual day after tomorrow rather than the, the whole dystopian disaster movies that we've seen, especially that movie, The Day After Tomorrow? What would that actually look like? And then after that, you know, what's the what's the day after the day after tomorrow, if you see what I mean? Because if we manage to have these kinds of different frameworks and these kinds of different visions, maybe we're able to actually withstand some of the stuff that we're dealing with now. Instead, you know, as anyone who spends any time on Twitter, which is already too much time, in my opinion, um, you, you tend to see that, well, a lot of people are just really depressed and a lot of people just like they're just sick and tired of why so many things are wrong in the world. And I get that. I go through that all the time. I just I think we need also something alongside that. There's no point denying that that is a real emotion alongside that to have a way of dealing with it by having a future vision if you see what I mean. future visions there, there won't ever be a single vision and i should say like this isn't it's not revolutionary in the sense that it's new it has a revolutionary potential although i also have some issues with the terms revolutionary potential but anyway because it focuses on the goal right rather than the, the actual practice of doing something but a lot of indigenous thinking a lot of indigenous politics have has already been about that and I think solar punk, the good kind of solar punk, draws upon that and uses that in a in a sci-fi context. When if we're talking about like fiction, in my case, it's I use that, but I try and then find a kind of act, you know, actionable political uh, framework, essentially. I from from your article, one of the things I understood was also that solarpunk has kind of developed not just from um, from the pressing need to talk about uh, climate crisis, but also in terms of literary history, it has also kind of developed as a reaction against uh, dystopian fiction. So I'm interested in your take about what made dystopian fiction almost like the monopoly on political com commentary for so long and why that monopoly has started to erode and it's giving way to something else recently. Right. Um, well, I'll, I'll try. I mean, I think on some level it's gendered and I also think on some level it's, you know, maybe that, I don't know if that's the correct term, but it's like there's, there's an ageist component to it because I think that a lot of what we consider our creative faculties and our creative potentials are sort of discouraged at some point, right? They're just not taken serious enough. And I think that in itself, it's also a gendered uh, thing. 
but when it comes to dystopias, I mean, I, there are very good dystopias, right? In, in terms of novels, in terms of stories, in and of itself, the genre can be, it can be good to sort of look at the, you know, the the bottom of the barrel, right? Like what what's really like what 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 when we think of rock bottom, what can that look like? I think that can be useful. I don't think that there's no value in that. But the proliferation of that kind of thinking, disaster movies, post-apocalyptic stuff, I think it be partly part of the part of the explanation is because it still fits within dominant frameworks and dominant paradigms. In those stories, like think of like I Am Legend or The Walking Dead or The Day After Tomorrow, you always have heroes. You always have, and usually male heroes, you always have someone who is very smart and or very tough, usually both, and who's able to do something on his own, right? Like if you think of The Martian, it's the guy just knew a lot about potatoes and that's how he survived. I mean, it's really, you know, it's that kind of trope. And again, I'm not saying there's no value in this. I've read the book. It's enjoyable, you know? And I want us to think about stuff like terraforming and space travel, all of those things, we need to think about them as well. But there is at some point, like there, there, there has been a sense in recent years that it's almost like we've prioritized so much of our cultural industries on creating more Elon Musks, right? Like we've just created so much of our creative capacities that even in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's basically an Elon Musk figure, no offense to fans, who saves everyone, right? Like it's that's offense just offense to a... fans, by the way. Of Elon Musk. <laughs> so I think offense to fans of Elon Musk. Um, uh, I was talking about the Tony Stark character. Oh, yeah. right, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, like there is, there are ways. I I even think there are ways of having nice hero arcs. And I mean, Lord of Rings for me, I I like the fact that there was a fellowship. Like that is something that I actually enjoyed more so than the individual characters. But it's kind of like it's it's run its course, you know, like, and again, there will still be stories and they're not going to stop. I just think there needs to be more of these alternatives as well. You know, like the way I've described it in the essay is that in the same way as it's very easy for a child to imagine, you know, a zombie apocalypse without even watching anything or reading anything just because it's part of. It's just part of, you know, the ether. It's just everywhere in our culture. Everybody knows that you have to shoot a zombie in the head. You know, it's exactly. like zombie folklore. Zombie in the head, garlic for vampires, you know, what have you. There you go. I want it to be as easy, if not easier, hopefully, for someone, for a kid to imagine solar punk futures. Mm. We, we have this, you know, this goes back to this ageist thing. We just assume that we already have the answers and we will just give it to the children and they will then grow up and do something with it right and yet we're kind of repeating these same cycles you know this goes back to the important critiques of of the education system and i think what needs to actually happen is that children needs to be told of course they need to be guided i'm not saying just leave them alone <laughs> they need to be guided but they need to be shown different frameworks and given an actual chance to participate in shaping that world that's sort of that's sort of the the great limitations of the sort of stuff would happen. Like you spend 18 years of your life basically being formed, you know, modeled rather than there's a good book, um, Alison Gopnik, I think that her name is, it's like the gardener and the carpenter. And that's sort of the two, the two frameworks. Carpenter is that you need to, you need to, you know, you need to create the child. You need to literally build the child. Whereas a gardener, you need to focus on the garden and let the child grow in that garden. That's sort of the, the metaphor. I'm probably butchering it. And that's sort of the framework that I'm talking about in in a wider um, context. 
anything from like abolitionism to care work to to um, what do we do with conflict within even our spaces? What do we do with problematic peoples? What do we do with problematic views? Those are not easy questions. And I think a lot of what we've been calling the left, broadly defined, has really been about, well, we should just be louder and we should just be more of us. And if there aren't more of us, then society is doomed, you know? And I, I really don't think it's sustainable in any in any way, shape, or form, and that's why I've also been moving away from it personally. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the way I feel about the connection between dystopian visions and kind of left activism, mm -hmm. a lot of the times also, I, I think this was like a big trend in the noughts uh, when Banksy was huge and this kind of like mm -hmm. aesthetics of uh, there was that the, the 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 first kind of things that come to my mind there was that. Mm, there was that music clip where like people were turning into robots. I, I forgot the name of the band. They were like, uh, anyway, there was a lot of that kind of aesthetic where like hey, people yeah, turn yeah. into rats and they're turning in wheels. That's like the notes was the decade where the word neoliberalism was pretty much invented and put the kind of for general use. Mm -hmm. There was this kind of belief that, you know, capitalism is going to turn us all into uh, clones of each other, that we were all going to be the same. And then capitalism intensified after that decade in ways that we could not even uh, imagine back then, like social media, like mm -hmm, um, targeted mm -hmm. advertising and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of like this kind of aesthetic and this kind of image of like the dystopian future where we will all be, because the Matrix was a great example, like your brain will be almost wiped out and you'll be sitting in this kind of like block where you'll be like living in an alternate reality that's been created for you by corporations and cyberpunk basically yeah uh and then we've come to this decade where pretty much a lot of the things that was described uh metaphorically has almost happened but we are still we still feel like we have some kind of agency you know because all of that kind of literature has totally denied whatever kind of agency that we might have in this future that was imagined. So that imagery has kind of faded into some kind of a cliche because we as people who live in this uh, mm -hmm. kind of dystopian future that was described to us before, we know kind of for a fact that we do have some kind of an agency in terms of how we move within this world and how, I mean, it goes back to the idea of resilience basically, that we have still some kind of an element of resilience to what is happening to us. I think it's kind of like a trend that's rising in the history of like colonial societies as well for all through the 60s, 70s, way into almost like the 90s, colonialism was always studied as kind of like the relationship between an oppressor and an oppressor, like a direct relationship. Nobody is saying that this relationship is not there but mm -hmm. we also have come to terms in kind of like in terms of like how we read history we've also started to be able to look at what these colonized people were doing how did they live because if you only focus on the question of what colonialism does then you're only studying white people basically mm -hmm. you're not even looking at the people that you're supposed to be concerned about and i think uh, the kind of literature and the kind of approach that you're describing in solar punk kind of Mm, reclaims that agency like there's something you can do right now here right now that is way more interesting than i don't know the lizard men who control the world and who are trying to turn you into zombie robots and things you know i've i've, 
I, I try and pay, there's very good uh, video essays on YouTube now um, of people who have also noticed this. I thought, I, I thought I was one of the only ones who noticed this, but then luckily I saw other people did as well. But a lot of those post-apocalyptic uh, movies, even, even if they're not post-apocalyptic, a, a lot of movies, whether set in the present or the future, sometimes avoid uh, dealing with the anxieties that we have on a daily basis. So one thing that would be pretty common is that one thing that you don't have in the future is social media. And one thing that you don't have in the, even in the present in many movies are people texting all the time. Now it's become a bit more common in movies in recent years, but there was a kind of a, almost a resistance to it. And I think because we don't want to see people texting when we go and watch a movie. That's what we do a lot of, a lot of during the day, right? That's what you do a lot of the time. And that, that's kind of the function of escapism if done well. Now, I think a lot of, of post-apocalyptic, as we call them, uh, and sorry, that's, it's not directly related, but I was thinking about it while you were talking. Um, like these, this, this genre, right? The main problems that I have with it is the notion that there is a post, like the notion that there, there is almost literally one day where the apocalypse happens. And then after that, it's post-apocalypse. And that's actually one of the reasons why I think we, that, or at least like media broadly, like uh, movies, books in general, with some exceptions, I'm sure, have kind of failed at preparing us to think about something like what we, like, like, like the, the climate emergency. Because the climate emergency is not a one-day event. It's not even a one-year event. It may not even be a 100-year event, right? It's, it's something that is both slow and fast. It takes on all of those different temporalities that, for the most part, we've been, especially in our modern societies, you know, capitalist societies, we've been unable to think across the, these different boundaries. In order to have a homo economicus, quote-unquote, you need to have a pretty rigid or rigid-ish categorization of things and of doing things. And you're the consumer, there's the commodity, there is a market, A plus B plus C. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty rigid categorization of things. What we need in order to tackle climate change is to let go of all of that because it's not just unhelpful, it's actively damaging in order to prioritize things like climate change you know i mean we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic right and a lot of the discourses to this day left or right yeah really is about how do we go back to the pre-pandemic quote-unquote normal some people on the left would say well of course we need to go back to quote-unquote normal which i have a lot of issues with the concept of what is normal and but with more social justice i'm like obviously if i have the only options between a and b and a is better than b i'm gonna go for a but my frustration is that on a global scale if we continue an economy of growth for example and unfettered growth especially it almost doesn't matter whether that that the, the spoils right are equitably redistributed or not in terms of whether we survive this thing or not if you see what i mean I'm not saying there's no difference, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying that it shouldn't be the only thing. Um, so like in the end, it's it's really not just, for me, a big frustration thing I've had with the left is that I really feel that we've talked a lot about how to redistribute those resources, you know, whether we should redistribute the resources equitably 
or not. And you know, if those are my only two options, then obviously I would go with the equitably. But that there should also be the question of why are we taking out these resources in the first place, like the extractivist um, uh, economy in the first place. I really think this has been a primary failure of the left. You know, there are, there, of course, there are strands of socialism that are like eco-socialism and whatnot. Obviously, and many people have been thinking about this. So I'm not saying it's entirely incompatible, but I'm saying that there's something seriously wrong about the fact that it isn't as inherently quote-unquote left-wing to think mm -hmm. like that as it is inherently left-wing or should be inherently left-wing to be anti-racist or anti-capitalist or what have you, right? And I think this is one of the one of the many, many failures of, of you know, we might say like failures of the imagination on that. I was thinking there's this one final question that I'm curious about solar punk, especially when it comes to fiction. Uh, a lot of fiction, I mean, I, I understand that it kind of, it wants to de-orient itself around a community action, uh, but what about the sense of conflict in fiction? I mean, is uh, solar punk entirely against the idea of having conflict in a story, or would it would it transform that conflict into something else? Yeah, I think it's it's just about transforming conflict. I mean, conflict is an inevitable part of life, right? It's a matter of of more. I think there's like two ways of looking at it from like, you know, an abolitionist lens is like, well, how, how do we mediate conflict to make it less prone to escalation, for example, but how do we as well, how do we put in place structure? Like how do we deal with the structural forces that make conflict more likely? Right. And I think solar punk would look at creating or imagining worlds in which this is sort of dealt with. And I mean, this isn't just a solo punk thing in and of itself, right? I mean, if you think of what is it like this dispossessed by Ostra Le Guin, I mean, that's sort of part of the plot, right? There is a society, an anarchist society, but it's also like the details of that society, like what do we do in that society in order to, to redistribute uh, roles and so, you know, et cetera. Or Octavia Butler's uh, Parable of the Soul, Parable of the Talent uh, are also part of that, you know? So it's not inherently just the solo punk thing. I think some of the best fictions have been on that. But yes, I think if we want to think of like what happens in 2050, to use that date again, uh, which is pretty close, you know, it's just in less than 30 years. Although when we think of 2050, it feels like it's far off in the future when it's not. Um, how do we imagine those worlds and what would happen in those worlds, right? Like, you know, of course, if, if we still live 30 years after the imagined downfall of capitalism, i.e. capitalism, you know, fell this year, for example, I'm sure there will be residuals, you know, to still be dealt with 30 years on, if you see what I mean. And a solar punk story would at least try and, and come to terms with that, with that reality. Mm. Of existing dystopian literature attractive to readers is that, mm, it's what we talked about when you were talking about like Marvel literature, there's this kind of like there is a person or an entity which is the source of conflict. 
and a gong-ho group of heroes, they kind of, you know, blast him through the door doing cha-cha-cha, and then they solve that problem mm -hmm. uh, in a very immediate and effective way, and that's what we kind of consider to be a compelling narrative. Mm -hmm. So here we're in a situation where we are invited to kind of imagine, not a dystopian, but a utopian society, I would say, and the element of conflict that we, I don't know, it's almost requires a rewiring uh, of what you consider to be compelling uh, to be able to kind of get into. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not solves the problem. It's no, not dissipated. No. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, so I suppose that in itself is like a very interesting contribution. Yeah, I, I just think that there is, like, Solopunk is sort of a response to the lack of utopias right like the, the there's been a proliferation of dystopias we know that but there hasn't been like an equal proliferation of utopias because if you if you think about it by default like both dystopias and utopias are unlikely like that's just the definition of you know, that's just how those those concepts work and yet one of them which are usually the they're supposed to be kind of like the other side of the same coin one of them has been much more much significantly more likely to to be a plot story right like in movies and in books than the other now solopunk can be utopic like there can be some stories that imagine utopias but i think some of the more interesting ones have really been more about like you know this is just the world in 40 years in this part of the globe in 100 years or what have you and they're trying to imagine not just how that might look like in the sense that you you're predicting the future but you you set your story in that future and you will have characters and communities of course trying to act on that story trying to create their future right from the standpoint of what would by their perspective be the present which to us is the future so it's sort of like playing around with a lot of temporalities i think utopias and dystopias both of them something that a lot of the time they've gotten um, I don't know if the term is wrong, but certainly, like you know, it, it's been a weakness within those two different genres. I, I think are often the same, the side, you know, two sides of the same coin. Have been a difficulty in in imagining a timeline in the future because often we just recreate today's timeline, but at a different date and today's assumption at a different date. And a, a good strength of Solarpunk, or at least I think some of the better ones, and probably will continue hopefully is to kind of complicate that. Like what would temporality actually look like if we're no longer worrying about, you know, uh, uh, capitalism and money and, uh, you know, whatever different. And I'm not saying those are two, you might still have a society with money, but without capitalism, obviously. Um, so like, it's just a matter of complicating these things and rejecting boundaries that up until now have been kind of the dominant way of thinking and way of doing things, not just in fiction, media, you know, uh, sorry, fiction as in like movies and books, but quite often even in like political discourse and whatnot, because I think they feed off one another. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I I think we can wrap it up on this note, unless there's anything that you want to add about Solopunk. Um, let me see. I mean, I, if you want, I can just read the the section, the the few sentences in which I define what solar punk is. 
Sure, um, absolutely. Because, of course, in the essay, like, you know, by the time it's out, I use a lot of other people's definitions because we're sort of using one another's definition to find a coherent one in some ways, or at least many coherent ones. Let's put it that way. There won't be any one definition. But for me, Solopunk, and here I'm quoting myself, like, Solopunk sits at the intersection of possible, po of possible positive futures and likely negative ones. It is a recognition of humanity's wide-ranging damage upon the natural world and inevitably upon itself. Solopong is also a reaction to the cynical and dystopian imaginings that have come out of the fear of climate change. It is a way of tackling eco-anxieties and an invitation to complement the important work of climate scientists. Just as climate scientists have sought to warn the world about the dangers of climate change, Solopongs are offering alternative visions to the helplessness often generated by such warnings. Solopong then is a challenge to the modern adage that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, to which I can end and growth-oriented economies. And I'll stop here. And I added the end by the, the, this last thing because I think this is my response to a lot of what we call socialism today. Because I think as long as we don't also tackle the question of growth and adopt something that's more like uh, what a lot of indigenous politics has already been about, like what people have been calling either degrowth or, po or post-growth, then a lot of the same problems will still be. Because I think this isn't just about or we shouldn't just be thinking about how it is to create, how do we build a better society for humans only, but literally how do we uh, get rid of the of the binary of like you have the human on one side and quote unquote the natural world on the other, which is even more difficult to do, and that that's part of the part of my personal you know motivations to going towards sort of punk, and it's why after all of the isms that I've played with and all of the stuff that I've gotten through, you know, from Lebanon and beyond, it's it's something that I feel is at least more viable um, in the years and even, you know, decades to come. Mm -hmm. uh, well, thank you very much. And uh, Joey's article on solar punk, solar punk, climate change and the new thinkable is on the Mangal Media blog and if you're interested in checking out what Solarpunk means and what Joey thinks about it, you are welcome to go and check it out. Thanks for joining Joey. Thanks, thanks for having me.